0: Hit record. We're gonna take just a couple seconds of silence and then we'll jump into it. Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question?
1: Now it is the perfect time. What if I did the eye? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. <laughs>
2: Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply.
0: As always, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, and you can find all of the links and resources from this episode, as well as every other episode, by going to fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. Spell it all out. Or you can go to fourhourworkweek.com and just click on podcast. Feedback, if you have feedback, I would love your thoughts. Anything at all, who you'd like to see on this show, ping me on Twitter at T Ferris. That's twitter.com forward slash T-F-E-R-R-I-S-S. Or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Tim Ferris with two R's and two S's. Hello, my clever little monkeys. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to The Tim Ferriss Show, where I dissect world-class performers, interview them, not literally cut them apart and dissect them, (laughs) to try to extract the tools and tips and to find the resources that you can apply in your daily lives, whether those people be billionaire investors, chess prodigies, famous CEOs, celebrity types, or anybody in between. It's uh, really a wide spectrum of expertise and you find commonalities. And in this episode, we will be talking to Two scientists slash entrepreneurs, specifically about the microbiome. And many of you, literally hundreds of you, have asked me to elaborate on the microbiome and what that means and how I try to manage or improve my own microbiome. And we have two people on this particular episode. We have Jessica Richman, who is co-founder and CEO of Ubiome, U-B-I-O-M-E, Dot com Startup backed by Y Combinator and Andresen Horowitz, which uses citizen science to understand the human microbiome. In uh, full disclosure, I am also involved with this company. I helped them long, long ago, and then ended up only recently uh, backing the company. So we will talk a lot about that. And then you have Jonathan Eisen, who is a full professor at the University of California, Davis with appointments in the School of Medicine and the College of Biological Sciences. Dr. Eisen's research focuses on the evolution, ecology, and function of community of microorganisms. Both of these people are fascinating, very different personality types, and the conversation was a blast. So without further ado, please meet Jessica and Jonathan. Jessica and Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show.
2: Thank Glad you. To, be it's really to be here. Really honored to be here.
0: And this is a this is a distributed powwow. I'm very excited about this. It's my first time doing this. Uh, Jessica, you are here in San Francisco.
3: Yes, yeah, in San Francisco, right
0: down the street. And Jonathan, you are in Vegas. So I,
3: I am hear. in Vegas. That's right.
0: In Vegas to to settle some old debts, to settle some old scores. No
3: what are you doing? Um, I'm doing a show. Uh, no, I'm uh, going out to do field work in Death Valley tomorrow. All right.
0: So this, this leads us to the very exciting topic and many topics I'm sure that we'll delve into. Uh, I will start with a very boring question. It is perhaps the most American of all questions, but the the what do you do question. Uh, but very specifically, I'll start with Jessica. If somebody asks you These days, I guess your answer is, it might be, might be somewhat straightforward, but what do you do? How do you answer that at a cocktail party if they still have such things?
2: So, (laughs) I mean, I don't know if I've ever actually been to a cocktail party, but when I go to conferences, people ask me that question and I have to back up a bit and start talking about bacteria. And then either people get this really horrified look on their face or they get this very excited look on their face. (laughs) Most people are not neutral about bacteria. So I say, oh, well, I run a company that uh, where we sequence the microbiome, those are the trillions of bacteria that live on and in our bodies. And then I sort of pause and wait for the look of horror or excitement to cross over their face to see how much more I should tell them about that. (laughs) And that's a matter of time before we get into the subject of poop. Like (laughs) I was going to, I was just, you know, I knew you were going to
0: bring it up first. This is a very. Yeah. So there's
2: like a mean time to poop. For a conversation,
0: yeah. Like, so, how much do you know about poop swaps? Yeah, that's the <laughs> uh, the opener. I, I find that's a pretty good pickup line, also. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, it
3: works for me.
2: So, uh, uh,
0: <laughs> Jonathan, what about what about yourself? When someone asks you what you what you do, what is your answer?
3: Uh, I'm a professor, and I study and teach about and communicate about microorganisms.
0: And I I want to define a couple of terms, uh, partially because. in in all honesty, and this is embarrassing, but I've never really defined these terms very well for myself. Uh, Microbiology. So you're currently a a full professor at uh, UC Davis, is that right? At the UC Davis Genome Center. What is medical microbiology and what is microbiology? What's a good way to think about that?
3: Well, microbiology is the study of organisms that we can't see without the aid of like a microscope. Some device they're organisms that are invisible to the naked eye. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, within that scope of microbiology, there's lots of sub-disciplines that people have defined. I kind of hate all of those sub-disciplines, but it's, <laughs> you know, some people, you know, in environmental microbiology is the study of microorganisms out in the environment, and medical microbiology is the study of microorganisms associated with human health and there's veterinary microbiology and plant microbiology and blah 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 blah.
0: <laughs> now do you do you dislike those classifications because it's kind of like saying breast cancer versus pancreatic cancer versus such and such cancer and you're like we should really be defining this by the type of microorganism not the location so to speak or is it something else that bothers you about it?
3: I mean in general I I hate rules and I hate stovepiping so I just think it's not that useful to isolate humans from other animals and to say that environmental microbiology is somehow different than the microbiology inside people. It's just arbitrary boundaries that have no value.
0: Okay. I like this. This is a good start. <laughs> 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 and uh, <clears throat> we'll certainly talk about it. You have, uh, you have a very interesting blog. What, are, what is phylogenomics? or phylogen, <laughs> or, phylogen- um, or phylogenomics, I can never figure out yeah phylogenomics genomics
3: there we go it's it's both a good and a bad thing. I invented the word when I was a graduate student to basically refer to um, evolution, Philo is a sort of abbreviation for evolution, and genomics, the evolution of genomes basically and i I regret this because I also write in my blog a lot about the proliferation of bad new genomics words and um, (laughs) it. it, but nevertheless I I I invented the word and then I just named everything all my blogs all my lab sites all my login accounts to you know various sites they all have something to do with phylogenomics and I'm kind of stuck with it
0: well you own it that's good I mean you'll yeah that is
3: true I own it and don't like it (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> and and the the evolution so the microbiome and i'm i 'm waiting very deep into my uh, into the the pool of ignorance on my part when I get into the microbiome, but it became of great personal interest to me uh, because I contracted Lyme disease went on very long term from my perspective long term use of broad spectrum antibiotics like doxycycline. And started to suffer from all sorts of health conditions that, uh, from my assessment were not caused by Lyme disease, but were caused by the long-term use of antibiotics. I started to have skin disruptions and all sorts of issues that are associated with chronic illness. And that the, but I had not drawn the connection between some of these supposed chronic illnesses and microbiome. Uh, a, a friend of mine who is sort of an amateur microbiologist, for lack of a better term, suggested that I start taking uh, L plantarum and a number of other types of probiotics and the symptoms I had this breakout on my feet uh, pretty much overnight down by 50% in terms of, of, of symptoms and then proceeded from there really, uh, really quickly. And so I'd, I'd love to know, um, how, what are the biggest misconceptions? And this is open. Maybe Jonathan, if you want to take a stab at this, what are the biggest misconceptions about the microbiome? Because it's been, it's become a hot topic. Obviously, the fecal <laughs> matter transplants are very yeah. exciting for the media. And, uh, that leads, would lead me to assume that there's a lot of, of voodoo and nonsense also being spread, therefore. Uh, but what are the biggest misconceptions about the microbiome?
3: Well, I mean, I think that the thing that I, I, the reason I, I'm interested in this from a research and a communication point of view is because there's enormous promise from a medical and agricultural and environmental and evolutionary point of view. I mean, every plant and animal is covered in a cloud of microbes and they clearly influence the biology of these things that they're living on. and So there's enormous promise, and there have been a few papers in the last five to ten years that have shown really big impacts of this cloud of microbes on the health of various organisms. But the the part that is also interesting and and sort of challenging is, um, for whatever reason, a lot of people have oversold or overinterpreted the what we know about the microbiome and aren't doing a really good job of distinguishing what we think might be going on mm. from what we know is going on. So I give out an overselling the microbiome award on my blog and it's like, <laughs> it, it's literally like, you know, the easiest low hanging fruit blog material that exists in my life. Um, there, There's just so much out there where people make sort of, fundamental miscalculations as to how to interpret some scientific study or some personal dietary change or other issues?
2: Well, I mean, I think I'd I'd like to add a couple of things to that. I think the first thing is that, I mean, you've noticed anecdotally this change, Tim, right? Like you, you take all these antibiotics, you develop this problem, you take probiotics, and it goes away. And that's not data, that's just an anecdote. But I think yeah, what, and
0: just in fairness, I recognize that it could be correlation, not causation yeah, I could, it could be regression to the mean. I, I understand all that.
2: But still, I mean, I, I, I don't call it an anecdote to, to minimize it. But just to say that I think one of the interesting things that we're doing at Ubiome and that I think is a general trend in, that is interesting is this crowdsourcing of science to enable things like what you experience to be validated in new ways. Because I think I don't think it was my feeling, is it probably was not just regression. to I mean, if it if it happened immediately afterwards, and you know, you can sort of see the effects in your own experience. But why did that happen? And does it happen for everyone? And how often can can that be replicated? And all these kinds of things are important questions to be to be answered. And your anecdote is like the beginning of a hypothesis about how probiotics can affect the human body, not just something to be dismissed, I think.
0: No, absolutely. Um, I mean, I'd love to hear you elaborate a little bit on what you, how you would define or, th- or think of citizen science, because I think we're we're leading into that pretty quickly.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, so citizen science is a is a term that uh, it, that was coined um, by the Cornell Ornithology Lab in the I think in the seventies. was basically the idea that citizens, people that are not PhD scientists working in a research lab, can create. Um, interesting science by collaborating with scientists. So, in the case of ornithology, it's really interesting. You know, there aren't enough bird watchers in the world. There aren't enough ornithologists in the world to watch all the birds. So, they use amateur bird watchers to contribute data very frequently. And that's sort of grown in this idea that other types of scientists can imp- can include the public in their research, whether it's data collection or even going further, it's generating hypotheses, funding science like we did at Ubiome, um, you know, open open sourcing publication of blogs about their own experience, their own experiments. And all these things are sort of citizen scientists, crowd scientists, people who are not employed in the job of science, contributing to science and adding a new perspective that isn't there in the, in mainstream science.
0: Got it. And I, I want to come back to you. Jonathan. I'm going to, I'm going to ask uh, Jessica a, f- a few more questions and then I want to come back to you and ask you, so you have, you have so much experience with research. I'd love to ask you about sort of what is wrong with the the current ways in which research is done or has to be done and how you, in a dream world, would fix that, because I think it's an interesting <laughs> topic. But yeah. um, Jessica, I'd, I'd love to ask you just on the to give people sort of a taste, and again, understanding that the plural of anecdote is not data, although I do have some issues with the overuse of that expression. I do too. I um, do too. I'd love for you to comment because we've talked about some of these things before, obviously, and I'm uh, involved uh, with, you know, I'm a backer of, of biome and believe in the mission. And I was a supporter long before I was ever involved in a formal capacity, but could you talk about gut mood and behavior, uh, maybe highlighting uh, some of the things you've found most interesting in the last few years?
2: Yeah. So there's a lot of, so, so let me just back up for a second. So the obvious things that you think of when you think of the gut microbiome are, you know, Health conditions that involve the gut. So you think about, you know, traveler's diarrhea and you think about um, enteric dysfunction and you think about um, irritable bowel or Crohn's disease or all the sort of obvious things that involve your gut. But what you don't often think about are other health conditions that are much more systemic that relate to the microbiome. So there's been some interesting research about uh, mostly in mice about how you can change a mouse mood by changing the mouse microbiome. And I know this sounds a little nuts, but there are, there are measures for whether a mouse is anxious or depressed um, or has autism. Actually, it was an interesting study I was just reading earlier today. And basically by giving, um, by taking germ free mice, these are mice without any microbiome. And then by, Adding um, either an anxious microbiome from an anxious mouse or from a not anxious mouse, you can change the mood of a mouse. And this has been done in a number of different ways with other sort of mood disorders in mice. And there has been human research specifically on this. I mean, they they notice different microbiomes in different in humans have different mood conditions, but there's no causal research there. That's a really interesting area, and I think I think it's interesting mostly because it points to. How complex the microbiome is, and how complex its effects are. So it's not just, you know, oh, the obvious. You know, you have diarrhea, and that's because you have a microbiome problem. It's much more, um, much more dispersed throughout the body, and the effects the microbiome has can be much more subtle. Well,
0: this this is uh, this this comes back to something that uh, Jonathan said about distinguishing between what we what we truly know and what we think we know, and there's often a very large discrepancy between the two. I mean, for a long time, it's thought that fat cells are basically these inert storage devices without much function beyond that. But a lot of endocrinologists have, have begun thinking of uh, adipose tissue almost as, you know, what uh, uh, well, is basically hormone uh, producing endocrine mm-hmm. glands in a way. And it's 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 very active. I mean, there's brown fat and different, different types of adipose tissue as well. And I think that you know, one of the things I've I've heard from uh, some scientists I've chatted with about the microbiome is that you know the gut can be thought of as the second brain. And I, I, but what where i've where I've lost track of the the argument is how the gut, if it does in fact produce neurotransmitters like serotonin, or is it just that the composition of the microbiome in the gut then affects brain function in such a way that affects neurotransmitter
3: production. Do you so have any thoughts? I do? mean, I it, think it's, yeah. it's all of those, right? Yeah. I mean. Yeah,
2: so there are a few hypothesized mechanisms, and Jonathan, maybe you can expand this more than I can. But but to start off with, there's this idea that inflammation that microbes cause inflammation in the gut, and then you your brain misunderstands, you know, feels that you're kind of out of sorts and inflamed, and then thinks and then is anxious about that, and then you sort of assign that to your work situation or your romantic situation, where really you're just kind of irritated because your gut is irritated. <laughs> so that's one hypothesis. <laughs> right. Another one is that the microbes are actually making chemicals that induce behavior in you, so they're making you crave sugar because they want sugar, not because you need sugar. So mm-hmm. maybe even making you crave things that you can't digest, but that they can, which so is a matter of survival for the gut microbes. To mm-hmm. you know, they the only way they're going to get fed is if you eat what they want you to eat, right? right. So that's sort of another idea. They're,
3: they're just... pulling a feed me Seymour sort of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so I, yeah. I wonder if it, if we can take a step back for a second. So um, I've been, and many other people have been working on how host you know animals and plants depend upon single bacteria single mutualistic you know beneficial symbionts in a variety of ways and we know from diverse studies of plants and animals that you know lots of insects need bacteria that live in their gut to make amino acids and vitamins they don't get in their diet and lots of plants get nitrogen via bacteria that live inside their roots and you know organisms that digest cellulose like termites the microbes are doing it and there's just hundreds thousands of examples where uh, a microbe is providing some critical function that the host is not doing for itself and there's also of course we know lots about the the hundreds to thousands of examples of pathogenic dangerous Organisms that you know cause some disease or some problem where they manipulate the host biology in all sorts of bizarre, interesting and you know damaging ways. and so in the, in that context, um, it's almost obvious that the microbes that live in our gut and in our mouth and on our skin and in our other orifices and places have the potential to do all sorts of things to our biology. And and again, if you, the way I think about it, I'm actually an evolutionary biologist. The way I think about it is, you know, animals have been evolving in this microbial world for hundreds of millions of years. Our evolutionary processes are in essence based upon expectations and the expectation for our gut and our immune system and our behavior and everything is that we're going to encounter microbes because we always do. Mm -hmm. And so our systems are tuned towards, you know, predicting and responding and dealing with microbes. So, I mean, in that context, it's sort of, it's almost obvious that microbes that are in and on us are fundamental parts of our lives.
0: And to give, I'd love to do a quick fact check. Uh, I've heard that, I've heard people say that humans are really 10% human, meaning yeah. ni- by volume or number of cells, uh, 90% of us is comprised of uh, bacteria. Is that, I mean... I th-
3: yeah, there was a really good fact-checking that someone finally did, in, a, in I think in the Boston Globe, where it turns out that number, which had been quoted for 20 years or so, is almost completely made up. Uh, <laughs> but but it's more, it, you know better estimates are probably something on the order of, you know, 50% Mm -hmm. microbe. But I mean, I don't think it, I I don't think that the total number of cells is that interesting. What I think is more interesting is that in our mouth, there are probably in each individual person, there are probably something on the order of 500 species or a thousand different species of microbes. And in our gut, there are, you know, a thousand in each different compartment and they're not always the same. So the things in the Stomach are different than the things in the ileum are different in the things in the colon and then on our skin and in different parts of our skin I mean we are an ecosystem mm-hmm. with with an incredible diversity of types of Organisms and functions and yeah each person it's gonna vary how many they have how many cells there are It's gonna vary over time, but we should we should view ourselves as a walking ecosystem not as an individual human
0: and how how, if if people wanted to learn more about the mic well actually let me take a step back i promised i would ask a question so i I will ask that and that (laughs) is when for researching the microbiome or anything else uh how how is it currently done and how would you change it what are the issues with accelerating good research in this field or any other for that matter
3: well, I mean, it, you know, I think it, the, the reason everybody is excited now, the reason that um, Jessica was able to start her company and the reason that there's a lot of stuff going on is that the the technology for studying microbial communities has gotten much better and much cheaper in the last few years. And primarily the way people do this is using um, analysis of the DNA from a sample. And the reason we do that is Um, most of the microbes in any particular environment can't be grown in the lab and we can't identify them very well in a microscope. But we can crack them open and we can look inside of them and we can look in particular at their genetic material, their DNA, and that DNA contains a lot of information about the microbes that are there that helps you identify what kinds there are and it helps you predict what their functional potential is. And so in that context, it's like I'm like a kid in a candy shop. I mean, it is the golden age of um, microbial ecology right now. So I wouldn't say there's a a ton per se I want to change. I mean, what what I really want to do more than anything else is engage the broader community in thinking about Microbes, just like Jessica is trying to do, we, we, we're limited by the number of samples we can get.
0: Right. Um, yeah,
3: and, so. and what we want is 100 million samples, to be honest. I, and I can't do that myself. I need a million people to help me collect samples. That's yeah, what so I want to get people to think about.
2: I agree with that. I mean, I would say I have a lot of thoughts on this because it's something we think about a lot and how to make research accessible to the public, how to make it larger, more scalable, more you know, more actionable in people's lives. And I think larger studies is a huge one. I think that, um, you know, the you can have a very respectable study in a major peer-reviewed scientific journal, Nature Science Cell, something like that, and you can have 100 people in it. And I just think that that's going to seem ridiculous 10 years from now, 15 years from now, when it's just obvious that you can source study participants more easily and that you can involve the public in your study and just have things move much more quickly. So I'd love to see that happen. I'd love to see um, studies be more scalable and flexible so that, you know, you can start off with a certain study design, you know, asking a certain question. And then because you have, you know, your 10,000 participants or your 100,000 participants, you can sort of take a subset, say that's the interesting part and then go forth with that group so you can sort of make the whole apparatus of creating scientific studies better, larger and more scalable. And, yeah.
3: And I was but, just going to say I mean I think that the one thing that maybe I would would say we we need to do in the future that we're not doing as much of now is that a, a lot of the work that we're doing it's incredibly exciting and really interesting where we can use DNA as a fingerprint of what's going on in the community. But but this is building, in essence, you know, some type of general profile of the world around us. And we can compare and contrast health and disease states. We can compare people over time. We can compare people before and after, like you, antibiotic treatment. We can, we can do lots to get a general idea as to what's going on. But, of course, that's just the first step. I mean, there's lots more really interesting... Biological studies that can be done once you have this sort of framework that comes from characterizing the DNA of the community. So we can start to look at the functions actually encoded in these genes. We can do experiments to test those functions. We can look at where individual cells are located in particular environments. So, you know, a fecal sample doesn't tell us anywhere near as much as. A full microscopy staining of the entire gut. And, you know, things are in the floating around in the liquid. Some are on the layers of cells. Some are inside cells. I mean, this is the first step in characterizing this system.
0: So, yeah. I'm sorry. I was just going to ask quickly um, well, just a couple of observations for people who are listening who are. It from a lay audience like I am, I'm not a trained scientist. I mean, I, I, I read just enough to be dangerous. Uh, and have spent some time at UCSF with a couple of the neuroscience labs, but I, th- I think that the, I want to come back just briefly to the, the plural of anecdote isn't data, yeah. uh, because this is, this is a term that is used a lot by people who don't really understand the design of scientific studies. And, uh, I, th- I think it's worth just pointing out a few things and I please jump in and correct me or, or uh, edit anything that I say. But if you look at, for instance, the development of smallpox vaccine, uh, which was uh, introduced by Edward Jenner in 1798. So he observed, and one could say, this is anecdotal that milkmaids who had previously caught cowpox did not later catch smallpox. And the, the way he demonstrated this could be causal is he, uh, as I understand it, basically took cow pus and, <laughs> and injected into it his into his family. <laughs> and uh, needless to say, pretty ballsy. But um, the point being that the, the observation helped him form the hypothesis, and that could be derided by this, the plural of... Anecdote is not data, and when when there's a study, I mean, you brought up a hundred subjects, right? So, oftentimes, people uh from a lay audience will say, "Oh, there are only ten subjects. Like that's that's a bullshit study." It's like, well, there are a couple things you have to look at, right? You you can look at the number of the the n, you can look at the number of subjects, but you have to also look at the amplitude of the. Change from the intervention, right? If you're doing a, a control and experimental group. So if you have 10 people, but they, they all double their working memory. Well, okay. There might be something interesting there in terms of the, the p value, right? And the, the likelihood that that's attributable to chance so is rather I'd, low. I'd say
2: Tim, like, yeah. I think, I think that's true. I, I would say the plural of anecdote is hypothesis more than it is data, right? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the example that you're giving,
3: but well, you know, right now, well, so, so. I mean, I, I I think that I mean my personal view on this is that um, many scientists, many of the supposed cognoscenti, um, just are assholes. I mean, and let's just be clear. I mean, you know, like um, they say things like that because they want to put themselves up on a pedestal. And I think that if you go back to your question about the future of experiments and and science in general, I mean, I think what we need in the future is for much more of these observations all the way through to clinical trials to be published and to synthesize the collection of knowledge from across the planet yeah. more than we need suppression of Work that people do simply because one person thinks it doesn't have enough statistical sample size or something like that I mean that is the the ultimate and in fact I spend Half of my time working on scholarly communication and open science Not on microbiology and I think that this is the biggest issue that we have right now is trying to broaden scientific research and not to suppress it. And I just, it drives me crazy. It it makes me just go insane when I hear anyone say anything like that quote. Um, and I hear this all the time in, you know, graduate student committee meetings where one person will say, well, that's not hypothesis driven research. That's, you know, discovery science and, you know, God, just get out of science for God's sake.
0: (laughs) Well, this brings up, uh, a follow up question I'd love to ask you, which is if, if you had, let's just say, uh, you know, five million dollars to use as you see fit in science, whether it's for the, the sort of microbiome specific stuff or the open science initiatives or both, how, how would you spend that? Uh, if, if you just had carte blanche, here's five million assuming it's not to run off to uh, Monaco and, you know, buy Lamborghinis, (laughs) you can use this for almost anything you want. How would you, how would,
3: how would you spend that? I would invest it in lots of small projects. What types of, what types of small projects? You know, I think that what, what, what I see is that creativity by researchers, by citizens, by graduate students, by undergrads, by high school students, that the, creativity that people have about science about microbiology once they learn about microbiology is enormous and what we need to sort of support is ways that those people can leverage their creativity to do a research project and what I would I would not do with the money is say give one person the five million dollars to do a big project I don't Mm -hmm. think that that's we have a lot of those projects anyway and what I really think we need is to harness sort of the, the anecdotes, the observations that people have made. They may not all turn out to be useful interpretations, but there's a lot of stuff out there that needs to be studied and we need more people doing it.
2: Yeah, I think I'd. It's interesting. I, if I if I had five million dollars that uh, someone handed me to do this kind of research, I think I think you're right. I would break it down into small chunks. I think that makes a lot of sense. You sort of let a thousand flowers bloom, sort of see what see what comes out. Um, but I, I think in terms of the microbiome, what's most interesting is to accelerate the process of taking these sort of correlational studies that we have now, which say, oh, isn't this interesting? People with X health condition, whether that's anything from um, Crohn's disease to autism, uh, people with that health condition are different than people that don't have that health condition. I think that's sort of the state of a lot of the research. And I would use that money to do a number of, of studies that would move the research to the next phase, which is great. Okay, where's our diagnostic and where's our therapeutic based on that? Because I think the real power of the microbiome and what's sort of magical about it is that these microorganisms are both sort of biosensors that can tell us what's going on in the microbiome at the same time they're also drugs right like they are organisms that when you put them in an, in the ecosystem of our body change change the outcome uh, from a clinical perspective and i think that, that that moving things from this sort of associational stage to a specific I don't mean, know. You could call it a product stage, but to a you know a specific improvement in outcomes. I think that's going to happen anyways because a lot of people do have five million dollars and they're spending it on that, which I think is great. But I would also take my five million dollars and knowing what I know now from working on eBiome, I would put that to good good use in those areas. Well, I
0: think I think the micro experiments are are really undervalued because for for whatever reason, it seems like the uh, a lot of the scientific community undervalue the things that cost very little money just because (laughs) of advances in technology. And for instance, I mean, and this might seem like a silly example, but, uh, you know, the, the late Seth Roberts, very smart guy. I mean, uh, very good at, at crunching numbers and spotting methodological flaws. Uh, but he introduced me to this very simple, and there was a fair amount. He did a fair amount of literature review to try to figure it out, but just the combination of vinegar plus honey in hot water before going to bed. And I, I I was able in the span of about 48 hours to have several thousand readers test this. So people who had insomnia to test it and compare it, uh, obviously subjectively um, sort of qualitatively uh, with other things they had tried like Lunesta or whatever. And it was, it was astonishing how positively people responded but I struggle with how to sort of gather that and codify it and, and present it in a way that can be graphed intelligently, right?
2: That's, that's uh, absolutely it. Yeah. I yeah. mean, right. Because that's a, that's a valuable study. If you just put a hypothesis at the beginning and a publication at the end, there's some, you know, that's a scientific study. You just yeah, have to sort of
0: right. structure and it properly. Exactly. And I think what's exciting to me, at least, is I have, you know, a captive audience of million plus people per month and y- you can make up, you can, uh, compensate for a lot of flaws in the data with large numbers, right? With the law of large numbers. If you have enough people, you can, you can smooth out a lot of the rough edges. Um, let me, uh, dig into a a slightly different question and uh, Jessica, I'll, I'll toss this to you first. A lot of people think about probiotics, right? And, uh, there's obviously a huge industry around probiotics. I think, uh, some of it, even from my untrained standpoint, look, Pretty, uh, pretty nonsensical, or they're pu- they're pushing the claims really far, um, or they're using uh, for those people out there uh, who don't know the term puffery. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this expression. <laughs> so there's a legal definition. Puffery is when you uh, you make claims that are nonsensical. They're non falsifiable. So if you buy a shampoo that says. Uh, you know, beta hydroxylizing hair volumizing formula. That's puffery because it's all fucking bullshit. Um, and, and, and that kind of stuff is used all the time in supplements, right? It's like, you know, f- increase your vitality and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Vitality, puffery, bullshit. Um, but the, what I wanted to chat about because I, I had this planted in my head by, uh, a friend who's, uh, he's, he's an amateur scientist, but in the same way that I'm not going to say Darwin, but I mean, people who ended up Coming up with pretty fascinating things were amateurs, uh, and and he talked about the importance of more so than probiotics, uh, basically treating your your for instance gut microbiome like a rainforest where you need to create an environment in which plants can grow. You can't just stick plants into the sand and hope that they'll they'll take root. And so he he has focused quite a lot on uh, foods that have uh, whether it's say beans lentils things with uh, fiber, uh, or prebiotics like baobab root and so on to help the body create an environment in which beneficial bacteria can thrive as opposed to swallowing a lot of pills with said bacteria within them. And again, all of this might be BS. I don't know, but how do you, how do you guys think about this? Um, and uh, Jessica, I'll let you go first.
2: Yeah, let me let me start with that one. This is this is a great topic. I'm really glad you brought this up because there's I have a lot of thoughts about this. So the first thought is, um, to some degree, people have to use that language of puffery because uh, for legal reasons. I mean, they can't say. You know this product is going to make you healthy in these specific ways. They have to say increase vitality, which is total nonsense. Well, but they can,
0: but it's just expensive to get FDA. Ex- yeah, that's clearance. fair enough. It is expensive, yeah.
2: but I think people also use that puffery because I I hate to say it, but the current state of the probiotics industry is that, um, is that if you if you have a study that shows that your probiotic exists in the bottle and is taken by the people that you that take it and shows up somewhere in their in their stool after the after they've taken it that is a gold standard amazing study
0: wait wait, that's like if it's excreted (laughs) Meaning right. like the uh, Olympic athletes having the most expensive urine in the world. Right,
2: the exactly. Yeah, okay. It's really, I mean, I think this is, I mean, no no fault to the probiotics industry here. This this kind of testing to better understand the microbiome is only possible in the last few years. So this is why they haven't done this yet. But right. this is a over $30 billion a year industry. It's a huge industry. and. Basically the science supporting it just hasn't hasn't been there. So I, I was at this conference, uh, that was a nutrition business journal conference, and there were all these executives there from, you know, the nutritional supplements industry. And they're just starting to start to figure out like how are we going to in an age where everyone can test things about themselves, like the age of the quantified self, and in an age where DNA testing of bacteria can can is pretty much ubiquitous, and we charge eighty-nine dollars each. So that's like really Cheap. You can do a lot. Everyone can basically test themselves. How do we make sure? How do they make sure that their products are actually doing something and are actually valuable? And so I think there's going to be this. I think the probiotics that you see on the shelves today in Whole Foods are going to be totally different 10 years from now because the public will just demand better. They'll say, well, wait, I took this and what's it doing for me? And because of science, it'll be possible to do better. So I think there'll be way that pro, the probiotics industry is poised for this tremendous leap into better products that actually do a lot more for you. Um, and it can be tested sort of apples to apples with prebiotics, like you said, like the, um, is pre are prebiotics better? Well, it probably depends on who you are personally. It depends on your health conditions. It it depends on sort of are the probiotics that are written on the outside of the bottle actually in that bottle? That also is a big, well, yeah, there's big that factor. Too. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds silly, but that's that is actually a huge factor, right? Like if they're not there's no currently no sort of testing for what's live. So I think there there's gonna be a big change in that industry as as these new technologies sort of work their way through and people develop better right. products going forward.
0: Yeah. Did you buy an expensive bottle of dead sea monkeys?
3: Uh, yeah.
1: yeah I, I saw, I'm exactly. sorry, Jonathan, yeah. go ahead.
3: No, I was just going to say that, you know, um, I think the growing appreciation of this sort of cloud of microbes, the, the microbiome, that it's an ecosystem, or at least it's complex like an ecosystem, is, you know, there are ways that we should be thinking about this ecosystem that probably – you know the simple model of probiotics just didn't take this into account i mean really we need to think about the dynamics of competition going on in the ecosystem of the different members competing with each other for food and for space they're going to grow and reproduce at different rates within the system but just like any other ecosystem there's going to be influx that is new new organisms coming into the ecosystem, there's going to be efflux, and, you know, there's 200 years of ecological research on studying these things, and, you know, probiotics are, um, you know, have the potential to impact the system, because if you have, you know, a massive influx of some individual species into an ecosystem, it, it can impact it either on the short term or the long term, but it's a you know very simple component of the total picture of the ecosystem so just a good example of this is if you take you know a savanna or a chunk of savanna and you isolate it and you introduce into that savanna 1000 cattle they're going to disappear pretty darn fast um but if you introduce 1000 um zebras uh organisms that you know roughly the same type of organism, but they're kind of adapted to living in that ecosystem they're they're gonna do differently and If you introduce you know fifty species at a time that actually represent something akin to what is naturally there in the ecosystem, that's gonna be really different than introducing a billion of one kind of organism. so I think the more the more we think like ecologists. The more we think about the dynamics of the ecosystem that is the gut or the mouth or the vagina or the skin or wherever there are lots of microbes, the more we're going to be able to make sense out of, you know, the puffery that is associated with the promotion of certain treatments and the more we're going to move into a system where it, it, it is useful.
0: No, definitely. And it, you know, the conversation brings to mind a past conversation I had with a really, really fascinating guy named Steve Rinella, who is a, he's a hunter. He's the one who introduced me. I'm, I'm not, have never been a hunter, but was introduced to it, uh, for researching my last book when I wanted to hunt and forage for all my food for a period of time. And he was talking about the sort of politicized response to reintroduction of say wolves and how, when you try to oversimplify it, just like carpet bombing your system with 20,000 pills yeah. of fill in the blank single type of probiotic or bacterium, uh, that you, you could introduce, say, all right, there's uh, wolves are dying at, at an alarming rate. There's a, they're nearly extinct in this one place. Let's add a thousand wolves. Well, that doesn't really work very well because it throws the entire system out of whack. And then you start, then you have, you know, it basically a mass genocide of you know their primary prey, and what he pointed out also, and I think this is kind of interesting, is that the microbiome people associate, I think, broadly with the gut, right? They think microbiome, they think I swallow pills, put them in my gut, and they're reading about fecal transplants and whatnot. But there's it's a lot, and and as you mentioned, Jonathan, even in the the GI tract, you have these vastly different populations in different areas, and uh, what Steve pointed out, he said, you know, people are against Hunting wolves, for instance, because they're thought of as very sparse, but the fact of the matter is they're very, very, very overpopulated in very specific areas, and therefore the the averages are misleading. So you should actually hunt and call in certain places. Uh, but um, getting a little little uh, down the rabbit hole with this <laughs> with this story, but the uh, I'd be very interested to hear, uh, Jonathan, you comment on the. Um, just from the evolutionary standpoint, how do people go about figuring out what to aim for when it comes to that ecology, right? Because it's uh, in a natural environment, you could say, wow, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Something is wrong. It's kind of perhaps more obvious to pinpoint problems, but should we be looking to tribes in Tanzania or Papua New Guinea or the, the, you know, the untouched parts of the Amazon, if anything exists like that to try to where the children haven't had antibiotics. I mean, wh- how do you determine the, like the menagerie of bacteria and the balance to target or to aim for?
3: Yeah. I mean, it's actually a very complicated uh, question and a complicated sort of research topic. Certainly, um, Understanding where our microbiomes used to be in the past is a very helpful component of of answering your question. So, um, if we can get access to you know mummies and bog people and Iceman and and other ancient samples, uh, microbial studies of those samples are being done, and they're they're very important for placing what we see now in a, in a evolutionary context and other people are going out and looking at, um, populations of human, usually just diverse sampling of the human population, but looking at populations that have been less exposed to, you know, certain types of food or certain types of drugs or certain types of environments. And that is also providing that sort of context. I mean, we, um, in my research, in my lab, we actually work on the methods by which you would um, compare to evolutionary relatives or to ancient samples to try and figure out what the microbial community used to be like. And and the reason you want to know that is twofold. You want to know what the immune system and what the organs and what the blood and what the rest of the body sort of evolved to see. And you also want to know how it's changed With humans, obviously, we want to know how it's changed in response to antibiotics and in response to changes in diet and in response to globalization and other issues. Now, that still doesn't tell us what the goal should be, right? Because we live in a world now that's different than the world we lived in 20,000 years ago or 20 million years ago. So, um, But it gives us sort of that framework to help interpret when you then do a study, say, of Comparing people in Japan who live in Japan now to people from Japan who moved to the United States, there've been a few microbiome studies like that, um, and it it helps you figure out what the disturbance is and what that might mean for our biology. But I don't think it's I don't think it's obvious how to say we should have a goal of making our microbiome like it used to be twenty thousand years ago. I mean, we have. Different diets, we live different lifespans. We have different interactions with other communities. It, it's pretty hard.
0: Yeah. No, it, it seems extremely hard. Uh, Jessica, what what is what are what are some common disruptors of the microbiome? So, if uh, it, it's it's certainly difficult to decide what the ideal should be, but what are we aware of that? can disrupt or cause problems with the microbiome. So I've, I've read certain, uh, wouldn't call them studies at this point, but, uh, that things like Splenda, artificial sweeteners can, can cause issues with the microbiome. What are, what are other common disruptors of the microbiome?
2: That's such a good question. So um, I I just sort of want to start off uh, with that point about there is no ideal microbiome. I think that's important. There sort of aren't, you know, people often ask also about are there good bacteria or bad bacteria? <laughs> and really, in, from an ecological perspective, you can't say, well, you know, a good bacteria in the wrong place is a bad bacteria right. or a good bacteria at the wrong time. So I think… Um, some of that exoticism about, you know, let's go back to our ancestors is, is not, you know, a way to find the right, you know, to learn how to cultivate your microbiome, I guess. But in terms of disruptors, so, um, so there's, I mean, obviously, let's start off with the number one elephant in the room disruptor, which are antibiotics, right? I mean, we see this in the results of people who have taken our test. When you take antibiotics, you know, a day later, your microbiome, their whole, you know, genuses of the microbiome, they're just not there anymore. Mm-hmm. And presumably they come back, you know, as you test your microbiome, as your microbiome recovers from the shock of the antibiotics. But it's definitely, you know, very clear that taking antibiotics just kills whole swaths of the microbiome. Um, the the study you're referring to about the artificial sweeteners uh, was showing that that it can be that artificial sweeteners can can affect the microbiome in the way that sugar can so i don't know if it's so much of a disruptor but i think i think the big thing is sort of changes to the microbiome in terms of diet so there's some really interesting research about people um, you know what happens when people have celiac or or people who are gluten intolerant eat gluten and how that affects their microbiome and how it just increases inflammation tremendously even after they've stopped Eating gluten, presumably through the mechanism of, of microbes that are still there from when they ate gluten and are still causing inflammation. Um, there's some interesting research around dairy that shows some similar things. Um, so it's kind of all the usual suspects in terms of what we think of as disturbing our gut is also shown to have you know impact to mediate some of that impact through the microbiome.
3: Can I add just? Um, there's another component that I view of as a really big quote, disturbance, and it's it's more of a disturbance relative to what our bodies um, evolved to sort of expect. And that's, you know, early in development, um, cesarean sections, for example, right. or um, feeding formula instead of breast milk, or excessive cleanliness as a child. There's a lot of epidemiological data and some microbiome data that shows that, you um, You know, all of those things that, you know, in essence, change the colonization pathways for how a young human being will get colonized can lead to um, longer term problems. And I, I view that as a disturbance in the microbiome because, you know, vaginal birth can be viewed as a delivery mechanism for microbes and as a component of it. I mean, obviously, it's not the only thing, but breastfeeding is clearly... Um, intimately tied with development of the microbial community. Uh, and, you know, even playing in dirt, um, and experiencing the microbial world in some normal setting, that's what we evolved in that type of environment. And whenever we disturb that, whenever we deliver by C section or have antibiotics or um, don 't breastfeed or are excessively clean or have all of these things that are not the normal developmental path it 's not that those are always bad, but they change the way our system sees microbes and some of the time our our system 's response to that is inflammation hmm. or problems with the immune system development or you know other types of developmental abnormalities and and yeah, I think a- that
2: Oh, sorry go, go ahead Jonathan. I was just gonna say I think
3: that that those should all be viewed as disturbances too definitely. so
2: there's some interesting research about autoimmune disorders and the hypothesis is that autoimmune disorders develop because the body doesn't have I mean sort of the hygiene hypothesis sort of on on steroids is that even autoimmune disorders are not caused by current um, you know lack of microbes could be caused by lack of microbes at a specific point in human development. so you know you take antibiotics in your first year it triggers something in certain, certain individuals who have a genetic predisposition to develop Crohn's disease, for example, that, that part isn't proven, but I think it's very interesting because you want to look at microbial development on a timeline, not just what happens to be present in your gut right now, but what was present when certain events occurred.
0: No, that's, that's a really fascinating way to look at it. And, uh, uh, Jessica, you introduced me to uh, a gastroenterologist that maybe we can name another time, but since I'll, I'll be talking about our conversation, I won't name her right now. Very, very bright. And uh, she asked me quite a few questions, and one of them was about my antibiotic use when I was a child as opposed to adult uh, and how that could contribute or not to immune function now, even though perhaps I had, for, as I did, for instance, chronic sinus infections when I was when I was a kid, so it's it's a it's really fascinating uh, looking at the chronology of your microbiome to sort of uh, follow the gingerbread trail to your current state. Not just looking at the snapshot of the current uh, fingerprint of your of your microbiome is is an interesting.
2: So what uh, I'd love to do is I think, and maybe maybe it's natural that I would think this, but I, I just, I think that it would make a ton of sense to take sort of a fecal bank when, you know, at various times in a person's life so that when later we have the technology to rec- re- to create, you know, artificially that community of microbes, you can give it back to you. So oh, that's gets, a good idea. Wouldn't that be awesome, right? You take your gut right now, which when it's relatively good, if it is, or your gut, you know, at, you know, throughout certain points in childhood, you bank that that sample and then when we know how to recreate microbial communities better than we do now, you just say, Oh, I want the gut of a 20. I want the gut of myself at 25 or, you know, I want the gut, you know, before I had an onset of, uh, of, Crohn's disease. Well, okay, great. We'll give you. We'll tell you exactly what was in it, and we'll give it back to you.
0: Oh, here's a question, Jonathan. Is that is that technologically feasible? I mean, if you had uh, access access to uh, the nitrogen and apparatus (laughs) to freeze it, like a sperm sample or uh, stem cells or whatever, could you bank fecal matter, or would it just obliterate the?
3: No, no. So first of all, people are doing exactly uh, that. They are. For their children um, uh, freezing fecal samples with the um, hope that either they will be characterized in some way like with DNA analysis in the future or that you could recover the living organisms from those samples. Um, You can certainly recover living organisms from samples if they're frozen in the correct way. Uh, There's you know this stool bank fecal transplant organization um, that was started by people from MIT that is um, doing exactly that, trying to store fecal samples for fecal transplants. Um, for future, there, there's definitely the technology to do this at least at some level. I don't think we know um, how to identify which of the samples are the ideal sample, and you know, not everything survives that freezing. Um, so you can't necessarily recover the entire microbial community. But, but there are, there I know, multiple researchers who are doing exactly this, collecting samples weekly, monthly, or something that effect, storing them, characterizing them in some detail, and then, you know, anticipating as part of a research study, restoring some from the past if something goes wrong.
2: So we do, so this is something we offer to people. You know, if you sample your microbiome now... Even you know, even if there's nothing particularly interesting you find in your sample, although that's unlikely, it's possible. Then you can, you'll still have it, so we'll know what was in it. And maybe I think I think where the technology isn't there yet is in, like Jonathan said, in bringing the microbes back to, back to the life, back to life. You know, the Lazarus microbe is not (laughs) doesn't exist yet, but certainly the characterization is there. So certainly you can say, you know, here's what it was like. And when the technology gets to the point where you can actually then recreate that community or infuse that community in the proper way, that you'll at least know what was going on at that time. Well, it
0: seems like uh, you know as as Jonathan mentioned, I mean the as we as we are able to identify and classify more microbes, um, and of course we're, we're limited in in terms of the, the the big picture, the complete picture by what we're able to identify, but um, it, and Jonathan, maybe you could, uh, talk to this, but it, it doesn't seem like from a sort of u- usage of recombinant, recombinant DNA and replication of these bacterial strains, like you could figure out the percentages and have sort of, the you know, s- like synthetic poop made to order kind of yep. thing, uh, to implant at a later a date and time. Um, I don't know. That's pretty exciting. I know, uh, I, I interviewed a, a woman named, um, uh, PhD Rhonda Patrick on the podcast uh, not too long ago, and we were talking about banking stem cells and how, you know, parents can keep the, 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 the child teeth, you know, the teeth that are lost by their children for stem cell banking. And it just, it seems to make a lot of sense. I mean, I can imagine yeah. after this podcast, you know, they're going to, there's going to be some, uh, <clears throat> you know, in- intelligent and uh, proactive, you know, tech, millionaire who decides to have like a poop cellar right next to his wine cellar with just like a gazillion samples. Cause you know, unlike, unlike freezing eggs, right? I mean the humans, at least most of them seem to poop quite a lot. So there's no shortage of material. Um, the, uh, the, uh, John,
2: I I just want to say that's something, that's something we promote to people that you can have that sample. I mean, the, the cool thing that's interesting also about, um, uh, banking poop is that, let's say the analysis methods of today are not the right analysis methods, right? Like, we do 16S sequencing. You can also do full metagenomic sequencing, which is sort of finding everything that's in the sample. Um, Let's say none of those work and we actually need some totally other method. If you at least have the sample, you can go back using the method of, you know, five years from now, which is way better, and use that to do whatever kind of analysis that you need.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, uh, I've been... uh since it's, you know, just us, just us on the phone here. Um, the,
2: uh, <laughs> and a million other people, and a million other literally. People. Hi, uh,
0: I have been banking, you know, sperm on and off for the last five or six years. Uh, and, you know, one could argue, well, like you're 36, 37, like it's already too late, pal. Like your sperm is definitely past its prime. And uh, be that as it may, which I suspect it is, uh, we do not know what technologies or techniques may become available in the future for sort of rejuvenating or modifying those samples also. Right. So right. There, there's no, from my perspective, it's just like, well, look, if you're spending hundreds of dollars a year on car insurance that you never really use, cause you don't get in an accident, what's the harm in spending an equivalent amount on storing biological material that could prove even in a yeah, 10% chance to be very, very helpful and could even save your life at some point or something like that. So that's
2: so that's a really good example on an individual level and also on a scientific level. I was talking with someone at um, in the UK about NIH bank, not NIH, but um, NHS banked samples and how because it's a national health service, they bank all their hospital samples. So they bank, they fecal samples and blood samples going back to World War II. Wow. Like, how interesting is that, right? Like, from a personal perspective, yes, of course, you want to bank your own sample. But also think about being able to, like, license the use of those samples or just give that data to a researcher that's studying something really important that you, your family could benefit from or a future sufferer. Or, I mean, there's just sort of possibilities are endless there to be able to take that data and make it valuable once it, you know, once you have it.
0: So let me let me uh, ask sort of a, a curveball question. It's not too crazy. It's just unrelated to what we were just talking about. Uh, and the, the question is going to be: What what do your close friends think you are world class at? And um, Jonathan, I'd love to maybe have you take a stab at that, if you wouldn't mind.
3: Social media. <laughs> as far as i know that's all they they know about what i do um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and branding phylogenomics
3: yeah exactly
2: <laughs> <laughs> making up words that isn't an and, word.
3: <laughs> and and studying studying weird microbes
0: <laughs> so uh, within the world of studying weird microbes uh what what are you known for would you say i mean what would if 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 <laughs> I, I, in response to what would someone say ah Jonathan's the guy you need to call to talk about that.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, using an evolutionary perspective in trying to study or design ways to study uh, individual microbes or communities of microbes. So, you know, a lot of people, a lot of researchers do great work on characterizing a particular microbe or a particular system but they're focused on just that system with a lot of their work. And and what I really am known for, I think, and what I specialize in is saying, yeah, that that's really interesting. But on top of that, it can be really helpful to understand the history behind that organism. That can tell you what direction it's going, where it came from, um, and allow you to make predictions about where things are going in the future so i think my my whole career has been basically taking that one that one theme uh adding an evolutionary perspective and applying it in a lot of different areas um and just hopping between you know genomics so that's phylogenomics and um, microbial communities and uh functions of microbes and uh how organisms survive in extreme environments and what lives in and on humans or on other organisms and always saying, oh, yeah, but what about the history?
1: Right.
0: What, uh, I, I really want to ask you a question, but before I do, because I suspect it might fit in this category, what are the, most, uh, what are the questions that you get asked from an evolutionary standpoint or evolution, ev- evolutionary biological standpoint that are most irritating to you?
3: um what what is the most ancient uh microbe alive uh when all all microbes are all equally ancient right now none of them are old they all grow and replicate uh that always (laughs) drives us that always drives us crazy um uh another another is why you know um the classical intelligent design questions i guess i don't find those as irritating (laughs) i get i get a lot of them but i don't find them that irritating because Mm. they're so common right um and i mean i think another really thing that i mean i would say completely drives me crazy and i get this question a lot is you know why study that in microbes microbes are so simple (laughs)
0: <laughs> ah, that's a uh, that's, that's a rather condescending for, way to yeah put it. I
3: know and just it has so many layers of you know inappropriateness and condescension I I don't even know how to respond sometimes
0: you just you just sidekick them that's that's, yeah. that's usually <laughs> I find that pretty appropriate uh, the the uh, so the question I was going to ask you is. <clears throat> how did Adam and Eve ride to their wedding on a dinosaur? That's really what, no, that's not my question. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, the, uh, the, the, microbes the microbes
3: made them do it. The
0: microbes right. made them do it. That's driving <laughs> behavior. They, uh, those, those dinosaurs had a lot of sugar. Uh, the, you no, know, the question I wanted to ask you, which is off base, but uh, I just get asked this so often and I would love to have a more informed answer to it is, uh, and if this is outside of your, of expertise, please you feel free to dodge. Um, but, what have uh how should one answer the question uh or let me rephrase it. What do you think of paleo the paleo diet or vegetarianism? <laughs> let me just throw those
3: those two out um, there. Um You know, I the the vegetarianism and I mean any I hate all rules, first of all. <laughs> um as in, in in all sorts of different environments. So anytime someone says, I'm gonna apply some rule to my life or to science or to something else, I kind of get irritated by it. But, um, you know, the paleo diet, I think, is a great example of something that is is really interesting from a conversational point of view to think about, you know, what how people used to live and what they used to eat and but to apply it to, you know, our modern lifestyle as though it's going to somehow be magically perfect seems um, a stretch to me. Let's put it that way.
0: Are you trying to tell me that cavemen did not eat coconut macaroons?
1: <laughs> no, did, I don't. I'll, you I'll, know, I'll,
3: like
0: I'll be that. very disappointed.
3: No, I, you know, I think I think cavemen did a lot more than we appreciate. As you know, they just discovered those supposed etchings on a shell from five hundred thousand years ago, and we're always finding new, interesting behavioral patterns in Neanderthals and in cave people. I I think we underappreciate what what the Ancient human lineages did, but I certainly don't think imitating everything they did is the right way to go.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I don't have a particular dog in this fight. Uh, yeah. What what about uh, vegetarianism?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think um, from a from a health benefit point of view, I think it it's not necessarily. It's also sort of you know it could be good for some people, not necessarily good for every person. I mean, I think that that's a Separate issue from the political point of view. I mean, I think of course. very, I think very clearly, um, the current mode of production of meat on this planet has enormous ecological and health problems associated with it. That doesn't mean like going out and raising your own cattle and hunting and other things wouldn't, you know, be relatively not as damaging to the planet. But you know, production cattle uh and you know chicken farms and other things are causing enormous problems with global climate change and with antibiotic resistance and with the origin and evolution of pathogens i mean they're they're just a nightmare basically so vegetarianism if you're doing it you know from a political point of view i can understand it i'm, I'm not one but i can understand it
0: yeah no i think um just to underscore something for folks: if you avoid antibiotics but don't discriminate your uh, uh, your sort of animal protein consumption, you probably are taking antibiotics.
3: You uh, are not yeah. probably. You are.
0: Yeah, and so it's what's what's important to realize. I think among many other things. It's kind of a haughty way to start a sentence, but I'll start it with that way anyway, <laughs> uh, is that y- people say you are what you eat, but you should take it a step further. And I think think of it as you are what you eat, ate, right? So yeah. you having factory farmed salmon that was given antibiotics may not be as good for you as eating, uh, locally grass fed. Beef, for instance, uh, nor is it necessarily better for the environment. Uh, so I think taking it, sort of looking at these, the secondary and tertiary steps is important or, uh, preceding steps. Uh, you mentioned, uh, a, a distaste for rules and I, I want to talk about this for a second because, uh, how do you distinguish? And maybe you dislike both. This is a fine answer, but I find it very uh, for me for me to be maximally productive. Uh, I find applying constraints very helpful, uh, using different types of constraints. So, how do you how do you personally distinguish between s- rules that stifle versus constraints that enable?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, it's funny. I just had a two-hour conversation with someone about this yesterday. Um, I, I think that the the difference is whether or not you're going to, um, apply them blindly or whether or not you're going to apply them with an open mind and intelligence. And the way I view rules is they're applied blindly and the way I view constraints like you identified is, um, you know, sort of like, uh, a slight difference in the probability that you would allow yourself to not follow them.
0: Right. 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 So one is the I told you so, because I told you so school of thought versus yeah. um sort of strong uh, like a hypothesis weekly ha- held or guideline weekly
3: held. Uh very interesting. What and then so so just as an example, I'm a I'm a uh type one diabetic, mm-hmm. um, been on insulin for thirty something years. Um I have I tried many times to have rules about, you know, don't eat dessert or um do this type of diet or take insulin at this time. And I've found certainly in my my life that I never can follow those rules anyway. Um, and it just became completely stifling to worry about whether or not I was following those rules. Whereas, you know, if I say, have, have dessert when you want it, but don't have it too often and be careful about it. I view that as a constraint and it works much better.
0: Hmm. How did now uh, if you don't mind me asking how how old are you currently?
3: Uh gosh, that's a good question. Uh, should I know this? Um I am I am 46.
0: <laughs> so how, is there do you have any hypothesis or, or maybe you know how you uh did you have type 1 diabetes prior to being 16 or and it was okay. just undiagnosed or did it was it did it have a sudden onset?
3: Uh when I was almost 16 um, over a period of maybe four or five months, I slowly started to waste away to the point where I was uh, had lost about 45 pounds um, and was probably within a few hours of being dead when I finally went into the hospital. And um, the sad, funny, interesting part of all this is my dad worked at the NIH and was trained as an endocrinologist. Um, and I had mentioned multiple times that, you know, something's wrong. I'm really tired. I'm thirsty a lot. And, you know, he was blind to the, he was a researcher, so he didn't practice much anymore. But, um, you know, I knew something was going on, but I didn't quite know exactly what. And it's like the frog in the frying pan thing. For me, it happened over such a long period of time that I just by the end, it was ridiculous. I mean, I was going, I was peeing every five minutes yeah. and drinking, drinking, you know, 40 liters of liquid a day Holy to try and shut up. Wow. And, and yeah, and completely ridiculous. Right. And putting, I mean, it ended when I was on a backpacking trip, my first one in my life. And I was putting my face into puddles of mud to drink the water. Um, and, you know, at that point, something finally clicked in my brain. Like, this is wrong. Um, and you know, insisted on getting checked later that day when I was you know on the edge of diabetic ketoacidosis. Wow! And yeah, that's it, was, it was pretty messed up.
0: How did you, what inspired you to become a scientist? If that's how you would uh, sort of characterize yourself, I mean, obviously you have a, a tremendous amount of of scientific and research background, but what what inspired you to take that path?
3: <laughs> so so. I'm from a family of dorks, Um, so my, in particular, my grandfather was a physicist, uh, did X-ray crystallography and other types of sort of theoretical physics, and he just talked about science all the time when I was a kid, and I, if you go back to what uh, Jessica was talking about earlier, um, I was a birder, I participated in some of those citizen science bird activities when I was a kid. Um, doing Christmas bird counts and Thanksgiving bird counts and I got really interested in natural history because of that and I actually went to college and I was an East Asian studies major for a while but I, I I realized that I was too interested in biology I actually took a course with Stephen Jay Gould on evolution and realized oh I can't do East Asian studies I just love Science. I love biology, and I love natural history, and that's what I view. I'm still doing natural history of microbes instead of birds, but same general idea. And that was that was at Harvard. Yeah, that was. I was an undergrad at Harvard, and I was taking Japanese classes, and I was taking you know East Asian history courses, and then as a non-science major, you had to take some science courses, and one of the ones they offered was this course by Stephen Jay Gould. And I 'd read a lot of his books, so I thought hey that that 's kind of cool and like within half an hour of one of his lectures, I knew that 's what I wanted to do
0: Wow, talk about that's that 's quite yeah. a quite an inflection point
3: yeah. I, uh, well, you and I definitely uh, perhaps another
0: time have a lot to talk about I was uh, I was an East Asian studies major undergrad myself, focused on Japanese, and uh, planned on uh- planned <laughs> on transferring to the neuroscience department. Uh, specifically for a number uh, of professors, Barry Jacobs, chief among them, and could not, uh, and, and I, I think that animal testing is, is hugely important, but I could not bring myself to pay the dues in the lab, which involved, uh, I guess they call it perfusing, uh, 30 to bleeding to death, i.e., um, uh, 30 to like 40 rats a day. And I was just like, oh God, I can't do it.
3: Uh, Thus, you know, why I work on microbes. Yeah. Right. Right.
0: right. They don't make it. They don't make a lot of noise when you euthanize them. Uh, what about uh, Jessica, what about yourself? How did you come to be, in, uh, to, to, to found you I mean, what sparked that interest? How, how so did I that? I came end-
2: to this a lot later. I think I, I mean, I, I was always very interested in science. My dad's a chemist and uh, we used to talk, You know physics and science uh, uh, and chemistry. You know when I when I was a kid. Um, So I came to. So I was very interested in science as a child, but I didn't sort of my early science courses was a lot of sort of recreation of. early experiments rather than doing your own experiments. And my passion was always for doing, for like learning new things based on science. So I went a totally different route. I studied economics and computer science at Stanford. And then I got a fellowship to go to Oxford to study um, at the Oxford Internet Institute and then um, in other departments at Oxford. And I basically sort of took computer science and economics and put them together to be computational social science. Um, so looking at the mathematics of social networks, kind of taking a, a different approach to quantifying human behavior so you know in economics there's very there are very specific mathematical approaches that are often used um, and I was really frustrated with those so I thought okay let's do something different that's still quantitative and what is now called you know, big data or data science but focusing on using different computational methods to understand social science data and uh, so I was doing a PhD in that and I went to I um I was part of a program called Startup Chile, which is a program to go down to Chile, the the country, and um, uh, they give you $40,000 and a visa to Chile so you can become an entrepreneur and start your company in Chile. So I went down there to work on commercializing some of the um, ideas that I'd had about social networks when I was – as part of my PhD. So how you can measure social networks better, how you can determine which one's are more valuable than other ones – and it was kind of interesting, but then I met my co founder who was doing his PhD at UCSF in biophysics. And this is Zach. This is Zach. Yeah. So Zach was doing his PhD in, bio, in biophysics at UCSF, um, working with microbes and doing some very similar types of mathematical techniques to what I was using in social science and just sort of a plug for social science. This is a, a rare area where the, the, the methods are better in social science in a lot of ways just because there are many more data points. So if you're looking at data from LinkedIn or Facebook or something, you have millions of data points, which is you know often hard to get in a biological setting. So we just started talking about this and I just thought, you know, I could take these same skills and apply it to something like genomic data, where you could just have this tremendous impact on human life. And it's it's led for me into this passion for science and public health that I was always kind of nascent, but I just didn't, I don't know, the academic structures just didn't help me to apply it in a way that, that felt meaningful to me. And I, just the idea that you could take the same data science techniques that you used to understand you know, LinkedIn data, which are interesting there, and, and there's a lot of value to be gained, but. The microbiome is this whole other area of human endeavor. There's, you know, it's a whole new organ in the human body that had never been discovered before. And being able to, to, to take those same techniques and apply them to something that's sure to yield some impact on, on humanity was, was just what I had to do.
0: How, uh, and, you know, with, without, of course, disclosing the, uh, the secret sauce and anything you do not want to have public, where do you hope you biome to be in? Three years. What do you what what's if if you could comment on that, or you or or you can no comment it. That's fine too.
2: I mean, I I think we, we've been pretty pretty open about what our what our mission is and what we want to do. And we want to gather, we want to involve the public in science by doing large-scale studies that involve the public, and then to take the products of, the, of that research and turn them into useful things that people can use. We will probably not be the people turning them into those things. So through partnerships with pharmaceutical companies, consumer goods companies, other companies that, that can actually turn this knowledge into something valuable. This isn't selling people's data. This is sort of taking the insights we learn from the people who are giving us data and then taking those insights and them to something meaningful. So that's kind of our, that's our focus. So it's something like, this is kind of a terrible example, but I can't think of a better way. It's sort of like Shazam. You know, use Shazam <laughs> to like figure out what a song is. And then they take that data and they don't sell what songs you like to anyone. They mm-hmm. sell what songs are trending and mm-hmm. what, you know, what songs should you be writing. Um, it's something similar to that. We sort of will figure out what is going on in for different populations over time um, through the cooperation with the public, and then we'll be able to sort of take those insights and say, okay, this is clearly useful in this way and helps, and give the information to someone who can do who can best make use of it.
0: Very cool. Yeah. Well, I, I the, the reason I backed uh, Ubiome is specifically because I I'm waiting for you guys to develop. Uh, the Rock and a Pill, you know, the professional wrestler yeah. slash actor. So I'm, I want to have his <laughs> microbiome.
2: We'll do it for you. He, since he's like 347
0: pounds of of pure mm-hmm. muscle, I assume that will be replicable. Oh, it's
2: coming soon. Coming yeah, soon. Yeah. All right. no, I mean, not
1: soon <laughs> I mean,
2: <laughs> um, I I don't know if you get The Rock in the Pill, but I think there's, I think there's just a ton of really interesting. And useful things that can be made from um, our understanding of the microbiome more quickly than in other realms. You know, if you want to take a whole other approach to drug development for cancer, for example, you, it, there's there's just a tremendous amount of, of research and experimentation that needs to needs to happen. But we're sort of these natural laboratories for microbes, you know, in in terms of us all having different ones that are doing different things. And we can learn from that um, much more quickly, that's at least our hypothesis, than you can sort of take other approaches to learning about, to developing interesting products from the microbiome.
0: No, definitely. Uh... So I, I would love to ask uh, a couple of odd questions of you guys. These are uh, a little bit of a shift in gears, but uh, these are, these are what I usually just call the, the rapid fire questions, but that doesn't mean that the answers have to be rapid fire, but we can try uh, the, the, the uh, the first question, this usually isn't the first one that I ask, but Jonathan, I I just love, uh, I love the fire in your belly. So I'm going to ask this one. Uh, when you think of the word "punchable," who's whose face is the first one that comes to mind?
3: <laughs> Jim Watson. Uh, Jim Watson.
0: Oh my! Whoa! No, I want, that one. <laughs> no, this is this is amazing. All right, so please elaborate.
3: Um. Well, I don't know if you saw the whole thing about him selling off his Nobel Prize medal, um, recently uh, because. He's so impoverished now because the whole world hates him after his racist and sexist commentaries that he made a few years ago associated with the talk. And now he just has to sell that Nobel Prize to raise some funds to buy a painting. Um, <laughs> to buy a painting? And, yeah, to buy a painting. That was one of the things he needed to sell the Nobel Prize for. And, you know, you know, Watson did some interesting stuff for a while. but But in all honesty, he's kind of a deplorable... Character these days, and i don 't think there's anybody that comes to mind quicker than than him in terms of punchable <laughs>
1: wow
0: that's a, an amazing no that 's a fantastic answer uh, the The painting must be very have high nutritional value
1: uh,
0: <laughs> yeah. you know um, you see, a painting <laughs> yeah and, or like very thick for for shelter
3: well, um, even more amazing, some Russian oligarch bought the medal and is giving it back to him
0: ah. Uh, Wow, that's, that's much more altruistic than I would usually assume Russian oligarchs to be. Uh, go figure. Um, the, uh, actually, so Jessica, I'll come to you in a second. But Jonathan, what is, the, what, are the, what is the book or the books that you've gifted most often to other people?
3: Oh, I, I know the exact answer to this. I give it to tons of people. It's a field guide to the birds of North America by National Geographic. Cool. And I, it's like the only book I give to people.
0: Well, that's, man, you are, I like, these rapid fire questions are really working out here. Uh, uh, Jessica, what about you for books?
2: Oh, uh, that's a good question. So I guess it's kind of boring, but I, would, I give uh, Hemingway short stories to a lot of people. Mm. I'm a yeah. big Hem- Hemingway fan. And, why, are you, uh,
0: why are you a big Hemingway fan?
2: Oh, he's just so, such an artisan of the story. Like he is so, his stories are so well crafted and it's one of those things where, you know, you look at a work of art and you can't exactly figure out how they did it, but it's perfect. Yeah. So yeah. So I'm just, I admire the craftsmanship so much.
0: Yeah. There's not a lot of, not a lot of bloat in Hemingway's work.
2: No, that is true. Yeah. If if
0: you're uh if you're a Hemingway virgin, the old man in the sea is a pretty good place to start. I think the short story is also fantastic. Um, Jonathan do you have any particular morning rituals what does the first hour of your day or two hours of your day look like is that uh, is it is it pretty standardized
3: it's very standardized my my wife probably gets up first um and we have about an hour before our kids get up and usually we um we make coffee on a stovetop coffee maker and we drink coffee and we sometimes sit out there sit there and space out <laughs> sometimes we talk about the plan for the day mm-hmm. um and usually our our cat our cat comes over and hangs out with us and that's what we do <laughs> that's what we do for an hour when do you wake up uh, she, her alarm goes off at like 5:55 in the morning um i'm sometimes up before that sometimes up after that and we have it about an hour before the kids get up. Now,
0: okay. I, now, this is amazing. Um, I, I may have a soul connection with your wife, which sounds weird to say <laughs> since we don't know each other that well. Why 555?
3: I don't know. She really likes to have time to veg out and to think and to process before dealing with the ritual of getting the kids fed and off to school and I don't think an hour was enough, so an hour and five minutes is <laughs> you know, like the bonus time. Wow.
0: So five fifty five, um I don't know if I've talked about this publicly. I'm not gonna I won't digress too far, but uh so five fifty five PM was the time that I finished editing uh A book I wrote called The 4-Hour Body, which was a monster. I mean, it was almost 600 pages after cutting 250 and it was the exact time that I finished my last line of editing in the book and was ready to mail off the final thing. So I always take a screenshot (laughs) on my iPhone whenever it's 555 because it's sort of my my good luck omen. Uh, Anyway, that's amazing. That's awesome.
3: Give a high five to your wife. I will take screenshots now when I get woken up by the alarm. (laughs) It's going to be a lot of screenshots. Yeah. I'm sure I won't be able to think well enough to take more than a couple. That's of photos, sort of screenshots. Uh, do, do you now coming from a family of
0: scientists? Uh, how do you th- how do you think about p- parenting differently from your non-scientist friends, if if at all?
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not sure at all. You know, we went through when our first kid was born, our daughter. We went through the. You know like read a bunch of books like they're going to tell you exactly what you're supposed to do uh, related to parenting and most of it is just you know something that worked for one person and you know it didn't necessarily work for us and again it goes back to that rule thing if you follow those books as a rule they're horrible if you follow them as a constraint and guideline they're pretty good so i think um my wife's also a scientist. she hasn't been um working in the lab recently we We say she's a child developmental biologist um uh, but so we're both scientists and we have a lot of scientists in our background but we we try not to either force science onto our kids or obsess about scientific approaches to everything. We're much more sort of holistic about how we deal with. The kids in in holistic in the sense that we try to, you know, talk to each other about things and think of, you know, common sense approaches as opposed (laughs) to digging into every possible scientific study that could have been done.
0: Right, right. And it also brings up a good point, just the the books on parenting comment uh, is – this is a good example of sort of where media, I think – can get things totally ass backwards where they might say, well, we looked at the data and of, you know, you, you had a hundred people who read parenting books and a hundred people who didn't. And the people who read parenting books turned out to be better parents. Therefore parenting books make you better parents. And it's like, well, it could just be that the people who are proactive enough to actually go buy books on parenting are going to end up being the better parents anyway, because they care more and so on and so forth. So, um, uh, yeah, that's, that seems to be the, the, the feedback I get from a lot of my friends who are parents. I am not yet, but I'm certainly looking for the cliff notes to the extent that I can. Well, uh, the one more question for you, Jonathan, and then I'm going to start, uh, raining questions on, on Jessica for a bit, but, uh, is was is there a particular defining moment of your childhood that you can think of, or was there a defining moment in your childhood that, that helped mold you into who you are?
3: I mean, I think, you know, we've already talked about one, which was the, you know, being moments away from probably going into a coma and dying from diabetes, um, mm-hmm. which really had a, a massive impact on lots of things. Um, but I think, a, a, unquestionably, I can tell you one very specific moment that had a huge impact on me as a child. When I was uh, almost 10 years old or just 10 years old, uh, we went to Kenya um, to visit my uncle who was studying baboons there for his PhD in anthropology. He was doing field work in Amboseli. And um, we went camping in the middle of the Masai Mara and other parts of Kenya, you know, with lions wandering around outside. And one day we were driving through the Savannah um, and my uncle said, that's weird, and pointed way off in the distance to this gazelle that was doing something strange. And we stopped the car and waited. And slowly, over a period of maybe 15 minutes, a cheetah came from over where that gazelle was and walked about five feet from our car. And then we watched it do the cheetah sprint. It didn't catch the gazelle, but it did the full, you know, 60 mile per hour sprint. And that, that moment, <laughs> <laughs> was so awe inspiring and transformative um to to me to just think more about the natural world i mean I was kind of into birds then, but I wasn't really thinking about it but that just seeing the dynamic system uh in the savannah and seeing this incredibly beautiful graceful predator <laughs> coming out of nowhere uh, that i I still remember that moment
1: wow.
0: That sounds incredible.
3: That's
2: an amazing story.
0: What, t- what, what, what time of day was
3: that? In the afternoon. Okay, I mean, I, I don't to, know yeah. exactly when, but I was you just know, painting and, the picture in my mind because it's just like wow. it was incredible. And um, and and by the way, as an aside, we're now looking into doing studies of the cheetah microbiome because I have to return to my roots. Um, I was hoping you would
0: say that you have adopted a cheetah and put a saddle on it. <laughs> Like, like Harold and Kumar go
3: to White Castle. Yeah, um, uh, um, yeah, that too, but I can't tell people about that. Right, yeah.
0: <laughs> Legal only in several states, not, yeah. not, not all. Uh, Jessica, when you think of the word successful, who is the first person who comes to mind for you?
2: Oh, wow, that's a really good question. There are so many different ways to be successful. Um, I think, so no particular name comes to mind, but what I really admire is when people have come a long distance from where they used to be to where they are. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes the people who've done that haven't come very far on a global standard, but they've come very far from where they used to be. So I always love you know, reading stories about people who you know, were in prison and then totally changed their lives, or people who you know, came from really modest circumstances and really did amazing things with it. So I think for me, like, thinking about that distance that people travel is what makes them successful.
0: Okay. No, this is, I mean, it's a good answer. I think that, you know, I guess it's what Hurricane Carter. I mean, there are a lot of, uh, of course, many people who can, who are inspiring in that sense. Who do you, who do you aspire to be like or to emulate as a founder or CEO?
2: Oh, that's a great question. Oh, wow. Um, So I'm not. I, I this confession, I suppose, I'm not a big worshipper of the sort of canonical Silicon Valley CEOs, you know, Steve Jobs and and Larry Ellison, and you know, even Sergey Brin and Larry and Larry Page. Um, I, I think a lot of these things are sort of you know, six sigma events that happened in a particular place in a particular time, and sort of slavishly saying, "Well, Steve Jobs did it, so it's a great idea for us." Is kind of not the best way to go. Right. Um, I think the people that I try to emulate are people that are one step past where I am, not people that are 10 steps past where I am. So they're probably people you wouldn't necessarily know, but they're like, they they've kind of gone to the next stage where I aspire to be. And then the next stage after that,
0: no, that's fine. Any, uh, any particular names? would love to hear. No some
2: names specifics. are sort of coming to mind. I, uh, okay, no, we, we, I do a lot of, uh, reading and talking to people, but no names are coming to mind. At least no one who's, I've, who, <laughs> I, who would think it'd be okay for me to name them on a podcast. Uh, yeah, no, that's all right.
0: How do you find those people?
2: Oh, that's a good. So I find some of them through our investors. Um, we find people that have sort of been funded at the next stage or who have done the things that we're trying to do. Um, I find them at conferences. I also just sort of find them through researching online and trying to think, you know, who has done the thing that I'm just about to try to do and, um, or maybe the thing that comes right after that and try to, try to talk to them. I think, uh, you were talking about superpowers earlier. And I think if I have any sort of superpower, it's sort of that, you know, figuring out who is, who is doing the next thing and being able to talk with them and learn what they know.
0: That's a good superpower. What are the, what are the questions you like to ask such people?
2: Oh, so I'd love to ask um, how things were done. I think me- sort of a lot of these things, especially when the report in the media, are like so-and-so is an amazing CEO and they did this crazy thing. But when you actually find out how it happened, it's because their college roommate was doing it also, or their professor told them how to do it, or there's, you know, some trick that they know that nobody else knows. Mm-hmm. So I like to ask sort of questions around what that trick is, like how how exactly did this happen? Who? Where did you first find out about it? What, what happened specifically? And mm-hmm. I think that's that's um, sort of how questions are really important. I also like to ask values questions because I think that leads to a lot of interesting answers about what, what was fundamental to what happened as opposed to what was merely incidental. What would be an example of that? Oh, so um, so there's a CEO that I um, sometimes talk to who a, has a a company that has a really strong culture um, and I ask a lot about what what was really fundamental in drive? Like what choices did they, what things did they not do that they could have done that perhaps they even wanted to do that they didn't do Hmm. in order to have the culture that they have? So what was the, what was the, what things cost them? What was the sort of, where was there some sort of,
0: what sacrifices choice. did they sacrifice,
2: make? Sacrifice, exactly. Well, what sacrifices they make sounds a little bit cliche. It's like, oh, well, I didn't go to the beach or, you know, I didn't spend time with my cat or whatever, you know. And, well, I'm thinking about it more in terms of sacrifice. It
0: was like, a dog culture. You got to choose sides. Right.
2: Exactly. <laughs> I'm thinking more about things like what, what decision did it hurt you to make, but you're glad you made it?
0: What, would, what was, uh, can you give an example of any of the answers?
2: Oh, yeah. So I think one one particular answer is um, sort of trusting the people around you in ways you might not necessarily think of to do. Um, Like what? Oh, well, in terms of just having a having a company culture that's very Mm -hmm. open and very um, trusting of the people that you work with. Um, For example, I mean, this is something that that we try to do at your like we have, you know, a a lead day scientist we hired. He's a theoretical physicist. He's, you know, just got out of his postdoc um, and he's never managed a team. He's never written code. He's never done any of these things, but we have him doing all kinds of stuff. You know, he's hiring people. He's doing all kinds of things, um, just because he wants to, and he can. So I think there's sort of a, a like a profound respect for that, that I have and that I learned through these conversations based on like, uh, on letting people do the things that they want to do if they seem like they can do them. hmm.
0: Uh, Hmm. We, we can dig into that maybe in a round yes. two. So that's, yeah. that's a big subject. Yeah, uh, Jonathan, do you have any favorite documentaries or movies that come to mind?
3: Uh, if you want nonfiction like documentaries, I, um, in terms of movies, I've been watching over and over uh, Shackleton movie. It was like a made for TV or cable Ooh, yeah. movie about Shackleton. It's incredible. Um, it's, it's just, you know, the best thing out there that is about the Shackleton story that currently exists right now.
0: Hmm. What do you, what do you like about it? This particular, uh, this particular coverage or story? Well, I mean,
3: so I, I mean, the story itself is, is remarkable in so many ways. I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in exploration. So, you know, the great stories of all the explorers over time, I read a lot of, and I, um, you know, I, I think the Shackleton story obviously is pretty incredible because, you know, they were setting out to do one particular thing. It didn't work out the way they wanted it. And, um, despite getting stranded on the ice and, you know, having a very high probability of death, they all survived, right? I mean, that's the amazing thing about the Shackleton story is they all survived. They managed to navigate across horrible waters with very few tools and, um, traverse, you know, incredibly difficult circumstances. And over two years, even though they sort of fought with each other, they, you know, they did mostly stick together. Um, and it's just this, this amazing sort of story of human spirit and persistence and exploration. Uh, and I, I read a lot of these stories about, you know, Antarctica and Arctic exploration. And prior to that, you know, exploring, the world around us, and the Shackleton one just is pretty incredible.
2: So this is weird, because I have a of spot for those kinds of um, exploration stories. I haven't watched the Shackleton documentary, but I love sort of the, you know, Beryl Markham and Amelia Earhart and that whole sort of, you know, early flight stories. I'm kind of a mm-hmm. geek about those. Um, I want to throw out a plug for a movie. I don't know if you've seen this, Tim. Have you seen the movie The Edge with Anthony Hopkins?
1: No,
0: I have not. Okay, what's, so
2: what's... this is a movie no Oh, wait, wait a
0: second. See. Is this about the Indian motorcycle
2: no speed no. tests
0: no okay, I okay. I, so
2: this is about a so anthony hopkins is like this sort of this perfect character he's a he's a billionaire scientist who's exp, who's exploring the arctic right so it's kind of this like sort of out there setup where he's you know this billionaire scientist who doesn't spend enough time in the real world and he gets lost in the arctic and there's all sorts of interesting subplots, but basically, he needs to find his way back to civilization and kill this bear that's trying to kill him.
0: Oh, I, I saw a pre, I saw a trailer so for this. Okay, so. this
2: was never like this movie is not famous. Like I don't know why. I mean, it has Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin and El McPherson in it, so you think it would be something everyone has seen, but no one has seen this movie. And it is my absolute favorite movie. It is just sort of this great story where not only does he sort of survive by his wits and you know get you know. Diff- defeat nature in a way. He also, his companions are not on his side of not to spoil it. Too
0: yeah, much. no, don't spoil um, it. I'll watch it. And
2: tonight. they are, they're not on his side and he manages to save them too. So there's this sort of this altruism huh. to it as well. I'll watch it's that. Really I'll cool.
0: probably watch that this evening. And Jonathan, I wanted to, I have, I've not seen the documentary on Shackleton, but the, uh, one of my favorite things, maybe my favorite thing, just not knowing much about that story uh, one of my favorite things about it is the classified ad, and I'm looking at a <laughs> yes. copy of it. And the cl- <laughs> the classified ad, this is what uh, Shackleton used to recruit people to help in this journey, is headline, Men Wanted. And then the, <laughs> the subhead is, For Hazardous Journey, Small Wages, Bitter Cold, Long Months of Complete yeah. Darkness, Constant <laughs> Danger, Safe Return Doubtful, Honor and Recognition in Case of Success. And then his name and address, just so amazing. I, I feel That's like... My, like- most job descriptions should have disclaimers like that, and the, 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 the turnover would be a lot lower. So in one the of movie...
2: Our investors, sorry, uh, I, was, I was just going to say, so one of our investors, someone someone you know, tip loves that ad and said, we should put that in all of our job ads. Oh, <laughs> I
3: totally agree. Oh, man. Jonathan, what, what yeah. were you what I were was just going to say, in the, in the movie, um, Kenneth Branagh is Shackleton, and there's this great scene where they, someone is coming in with that advertisement to, you know, apply for the job, um, so it's just completely. <laughs> wow, it's per- okay. Well,
0: well I, I, I heard that he was inundated with applications. I don't know if that's true or not.
3: They well, were drowning and they literally got, you know, they had to hire people to go through the mail because they got so many applications. That's
0: so awesome. That's great. And yeah. I mean, the, and the, the, the great thing about that disclosure is that they can always they can always pull out the, well, I told you so like you can't really right, right. complain <laughs> about the darkness. I fucking told you in the classified, <laughs> I mean, this wasn't uh, you know, a hidden risk. Uh, the, um, uh, Jonathan, if you could change or improve one thing about yourself, what would it be?
3: Uh, better organization. <laughs> better. I'm, I'm not. I'm not really good at um, planning things or keeping everything organized.
0: Do you think that the hatred of rules has? is related to that
2: (laughs) or (laughs) should
0: i
3: I lie down on the couch in my hotel room now Uh,
0: (laughs) i'm uh, not qualified
3: (laughs) i i I think that there's a very strong correlation there um (laughs) whether it's causal or not i don't know but um uh yeah i mean i think i you know i do a really good job with um getting things to happen most of the time, <laughs> but um, I I could definitely use much better, much more effort on, you know, a personal assistant or some type of planning.
0: So, okay, now, now this is, okay, so I don't let journalists follow me for what they want to be a typical day, really ever, because... I find, people expect me to be this, uh, sort of paragon of efficiency and I run my life like Spock and it's just this incredible <laughs> sort of Swiss watch of productivity. And I'm like, if you came and watched me, you would just ask yourself all day, what the fuck is this guy doing? And it's, <laughs> but despite all of my flaws, I get a fair amount done. And it's for, I mean, reasons that that I could speculate and talk about. And I have talked about ad nauseum, so I won't do it now. But you, you Jonathan, get, you've done a, a huge amount, accomplished a huge amount. So what allows you to compensate for this lack of organization and get a lot done?
3: Uh, I mean, I think what allows me to sort of compensate for it most of the time is that I... I mean, maybe it is the lack of the rules. I have a big picture of what's happening in my lab and in the work I want to do and in the projects I want to do. And I'm not always obsessing with, you know, am I following the right path for a professor or am I applying for the right jobs or am I submitting to the right journal? I do what I want to do. And it's worked out really, really well for me. And I think that in in research, I know a lot of colleagues who spend a lot of time worrying about what they're supposed to do as opposed to what they want to do. And so I think because I spent, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about what I'm supposed to do. It works out a lot of the time that I, I get a lot done because I'm doing things I love and excited about, and I never worry about what I'm supposed to do. But you know, I confess, things slip through the cracks, <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a bad approach. Um, and, you know, most of the time it doesn't matter, but, you know, every once in a while it does.
0: <laughs> no, I, I like this. This reminds me of uh, one of, one of my something that I read by one of my favorite uh, writers, Neil Gaiman, who's a fiction writer. And uh, he gave a commencement speech, uh, and I think it was simply called Make Good Art, but he talks about – uh, I think he talks about in this particular commencement about, um, uh, sort of the big picture of moving closer to or further away from the mountain, which is this major goal he had of, I believe it was just being a full-time writer. And, uh, a lot slipped through the cracks, but because he had that one North Star, it sounds like, as you do with, say, the, the sort of overarching goals of the, um, the lab or otherwise he he's been able to create this incredible career even though a lot has fallen through the cracks. Um, so speaking of commencements uh, on a related note, and then I'll, I'll, I'll let us wrap up. This has been a lot of fun and I, I, I want to be respectful of both your, uh, your evenings. Uh, Jessica, if you were giving a few pieces of advice to your 20 year old self, what would the advice be? Oh, and and uh, Jonathan, I'll ask you the same as well after this.
2: So I think my advice to my 20-year-old self would be about confidence. I mean, I think I've learned so much um, through through working on my PhD, through starting this company. I've just sort of gained such a broader perspective. And I think I just didn't have confidence in myself and in what I could do and in sort of the the level the level to which I could be pushed and still excel. And I think I would just tell my 20 year old self to just not be so afraid of trying things. I think that would really, that's the number one piece of advice. And I think the second thing would be to really think very broadly about what's possible. That's kind of related, but just sort of not, not only think you can do it, but think about that. There are many things possible in the world to do Mm -hmm. that I don't think I thought of when I was, when I was 20. Um, and you know all the all the sort of standard like buy this stock or you know like, yeah buy, things, buy Apple you know, right right exactly buy uh, Apple what uh,
0: <laughs> what what were you so why did you lack confidence what why were you intimidated
2: I have thought about this a lot I mean I think that some of this is sort of that traditional female sort of stuff where like you know and I see this all the time and when I see it in people I always comment about it because I kind of make a point of it maybe I'm annoying about it but I was just talking to um to someone today who was like well I'd, this is uh, this is actually our director of operations, and she was like, "Well, you know, I don't know if I can do that. Maybe it'll be, you know, maybe I should just wait and then not and ask them if it's okay." And I'm like, "No, no, no. Women wait and ask. Men just go do it and then apologize for it later." And I think <laughs> it's just like it's, just, it's true. There's sort of this like very female like, "Oh, wait, and you'll be rewarded." Like uh, like that uh, CEO of Microsoft was saying, "Women should just wait and not ask for raises, and then karma will give them money." And I just feel like that, he actually said that, and I think we were just socialized to believe that. So yeah. I think that's a big part of it. But I think, I think another part of it was just, um, I don't know. I think, I think another part of it may have been sort of socioeconomic I think there's sort of this like upper middle class, you know, feeling of power that I learned at Stanford that I didn't know before that. And there's sort of this sense that you can get close to the seat of power. I remember when I when I first came to Stanford and I just, you know, you meet people that you read about in the news. (laughs) and I just didn't know anyone before who'd ever met anyone who'd been in the news. And, you, you know, go to a talk and it's like the secretary of defense or something or it's, you know, that, you know, it's Steven Pinker. It's somebody that's just like, you've read their books, but the idea that these are actually real people who were not perfect and, didn't do everything perfectly. I think I, as a child, I sort of imbibed this very, like, you know, my, my grandparents were immigrants after the Holocaust and my parents sort of grew up in that kind of milieu in New York. And, um, when I sort of, there's always this idea that if you're perfect, if you work hard and you're absolutely perfect, you too can succeed. And when I met people who were like the most successful people in the world and they had lots of problems, (laughs) And we're also very anxious about lots of things. I thought, okay, you know, I could be one of those people.
1: <laughs> right. You're like, oh,
2: oh, okay. I can do that. I get
0: it. These are human problems, not
2: exactly. me and problems. Exactly. I just didn't know that growing up. So that was a big revelation for me. And I, I want to
0: just underscore one thing you said, and it's always a danger for me to say this because I, I look like uh, American History X, so it's a sensitive <laughs> subject. But I, <laughs> I was having a conversation once with a very, very, very successful uh, female executive And the topic, this was a group conversation among friends, and the the topic came up about salary discrepancies. And her thought, and I'm not saying this is the only, certainly not the only perspective, but she was massively, I mean, she makes millions and millions of dollars a year. And she said, the reason women make less oftentimes is because they don't ask for more.
2: Yeah, studies have shown that. That's not just her.
0: Yeah, and so, Yeah. uh, yeah, the the asking for... Forgiveness, rather than asking for permission, I think is a really important one. Jonathan, well, I mean, what, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Didn't oh, mean so to I was to
2: say. Yeah. I mean, this is very controversial because you know Cheryl Sandberg's point about leaning in, but I, I think she's absolutely right. There are there are all sorts of structural inequalities, and all those things are all true. But being able to just not stop yourself is at least a first order <laughs> approach that you can take, where other people may stop you, but at least don't stop yourself.
0: Right. Right. No. Absolutely. Uh, okay. Jonathan, what advice would you give your 20 year old self?
3: I I would I would tell myself to bank all my fecal samples
1: with the biome,
2: obviously
3: um, no. and, they, and they'd be like what like in a what ice cube tray? Right. Like, how do I do that so weird um no you know I I mean just like I don't plan things uh, very well I also am not very um retrospective in thinking but I mean I think that the the thing that I wish I had done more of um, and that I think would be, you know, really good in general um, is to to trust good people and ask them advice. Um, I, I mean, I have asked people advice over the years. And when there are people that I really trust and people that seem to be good human beings, that that advice has actually been been really good uh, a lot of the time. And I don't think I've done that enough. I think that, you know a lot of the time i try to work things out in my head um you know through some logical flowchart or you know because i'm so damn smart right uh, you know like i just uh, i think asking for help from the right people is a really good thing and i wish i had done that um, more and related to that um, something i also wish i had done more and i, I try to do much more now is to, to thank people who help you. Mm. Um, there's lots of people along the way in life who, who do something small or something big, who, who have helped me and help everybody else in, in a lot of ways. And, you know, in science, we stand on the shoulders of others and, you know, it, it doesn't hurt to thank those people.
0: That's great advice. Well, on that note, uh, thank you both so much for taking this time. This was a really enjoyable conversation for me. And I hope, the, the, that that's true for both of you as well uh, how can how can people learn more about what you are up to and uh i'll let uh we'll go back to to jessica here jessica where can people learn more about uh everything that you're up to
2: yeah so as far as ubiome goes you go to com. that's um, with a u you can, with a u yes yeah, so i should spell that's com. um so just go to ubiome.com. There's sort of there's interesting information about what we're doing. Our blog is there. You can also purchase kits to better understand your own microbiome um, and all sorts of interesting stuff. You'll just find
0: there. just mailed one off myself today.
2: Thank you. Back to we, you. We yes. look forward to receiving your poop. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, and on, are you on Twitter? Any other social?
2: Oh yeah. So I'm on outlets? I'm on Twitter at Jessica Richmond. So that's just my name J E S S I C A. R-I-C-H-M-A-N, like a wealthy man. And uh, Ubiome is also on Twitter at Ubiome. Very cool. And Jonathan?
3: Uh, Everything associated with phylogenomics, uh, that's my Twitter handle. My personal blog is phylogenomics at Blogspot. Um, My lab website is a phylogenomics WordPress site. (laughs) Um, So the best way to find out about me is probably to just Google phylogenomics, P-H-Y-L-O, G-E-N-O-M-I-C-S and then most of the stuff that comes up is something I've done
0: Awesome, well guys this was a blast I really appreciate it have a wonderful weekend and uh, to be continued hopefully.
2: Yeah, you too, thanks yeah. so much for having me on
3: Alright, yeah, thank you very much Thanks guys, okay, bye, Bye-bye. Okay, bye.